Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, uh, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Robert Rosenthal, the former executive director of the Center for Investigative Reporting and a current board member there, and your moderator for tonight's program. This program is part of the club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. It's now my pleasure to introduce today's distinguished speaker, Stephen Kinsner, Senior Fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, former New York Times Bureau Chief for Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey, and author of the new book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb in the CIA Search for Mind Control. Mr. Kinzer is the author of nine books, including The True Flag, The Brothers, Overthrow, and All the Shah's Men. He is also an award-winning correspondent and writes a world affairs column for the Boston Globe. His new book tells the astonishing story of the man who oversaw the CIA's secret medical experiments of the 1950s and 60s, drawing on original interviews, survivors' testimonies, and documentary research. Mr. Kinsler's book brings to light this massive hunt for the secret of mind control that spanned several countries, included the work of Nazi scientists, and lead to, led to experimentation on government employees, willing and unwilling, foreign politicians, children prisoners, sex workers, and anyone else the poisoner-in-chief deemed threatening or expendable. You're about to hear a startling tale of the most powerful unknown Americans of the 20th century and of government lies and deception. Please welcome Ms. Kinsner. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here back at the Commonwealth Club, especially in their uh, wonderful new home. Um, I've been here before speaking about other books, as you heard. Um, this is now my 10th book. And I have to say that uh, so I've devoted a good deal of my career to trying to figure out what's behind the facade of public politics and public diplomacy that we see. This has led me to discover a number of things that are surprising. Maybe they were shocking to some people. This is the first time I've been shocked. I, I'm still in shock at what I discovered while I was researching this book. I, I cannot believe that this MK Ultra project happened. And I cannot believe that this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, existed. Uh, I do believe that I stumbled on, as you heard, the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century unless there was somebody else who lived in total invisibility, carried out heinous experiments on human subjects across three continents, uh, and had what amounted to a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. Uh, so in a sense, my book is the biography of a guy who didn't exist. He was so anonymous that even most of the people at the CIA had no idea what he was doing. Uh, but what he was doing is something that's profoundly important as we try to understand ourselves in our modern history. So let me talk a little bit about what his job was. MKUltra was the CIA's project aimed at finding the secret of mind control. How do you make a subject completely dependent on you so that he will tell you the complete truth, that he will forget everything you want him to forget? Maybe that you could program to carry out acts that uh, you want him to carry out, then he would forget who ordered him 
to commit them or that he ever had committed them. Um, so this bizarre project based on a great fantasy began uh, in the early years of the Cold War after World War II. Um, the CIA was electrified by a couple of episodes that it misinterpreted as meaning that the Soviets, the communists, had discovered the key to mind control. Um, one of them was the trial of the Roman Catholic prelate in Hungary. Communist authorities put him on trial. He confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed, and he seemed uh, dazed. He spoke in a monotone. His eyes were glazed. As it later turned out, he had been coerced by the normal means that people have been using to coerce prisoners for centuries. But the CIA didn't see it that way. They saw that he'd been brainwashed, which incidentally was a word that was invented by a CIA propagandist to try to promote the idea in the United States that people who were dissidents and didn't uh, accept the paradigm of that era had somehow been captured by foreigners. But the CIA then fell for its own fantasy and started believing in brainwashing. Uh, the second episode came at the end of the Korean War, when it turned out that a number of the released American prisoners had signed statements criticizing aspects of life in the United States or even confessing to having committed war crimes in Korea. How could this have happened? Uh, it couldn't be that they were speaking honestly, and the CIA's answer was brainwashing. So again, the communists, they made themselves believe, have come up with the way to control people's minds. That means we, the CIA, have to launch a project to do the same. We have to catch up with them. So uh, as it later turned out, this was all a fantasy. Actually, there was no pill or potion or any technique that Soviets or any other authorities had discovered to control people's minds. But the CIA was open to this. And I asked myself, how did they get caught up in this fantasy? Um, I think those particular episodes were important, but I, I suspect that their minds were uh, made ready for this by all the movies and all the books and stories that they read. Uh, there were all those Sherlock Holmes stories and Edgar Allan Poe stories, uh, movies like Gaslight and movies about Svengali who could make people do whatever he wanted. And I think uh, maybe at, at the CIA, unconsciously, people assumed that whatever fantasists could imagine, science could make real. So in 1951, Alan Dulles decided to formalize the CIA's search for the key to mind control. And he decided to go outside the CIA to find somebody who could direct this project. He called it MK Ultra. And I think uh, that name reflects what Alan Dulles thought about this project. It was the Ultra Project. If you could find a way to control people's minds, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. Little successes of the CIA in the early 1950s, like overthrowing the government of Iran or overthrowing the government of Guatemala, would pale into insignificance if you could find the ultra secret, the, the way to control people's minds. So the person that Alan Dulles found to run this mind control program was very different from everybody else in the early CIA. 
Most of the officers in those days were uh, silver spoon aristocratic products of the same prep schools and investment banks who had known each other through family ties. Gottlieb was not like that. Uh, He was the son of Jewish immigrants. He grew up in the Bronx. He went to City College of New York and later Caltech. Um, He limped. He had a stutter. He was 32 years old. And with all this, he was brought in to be the chief chemist of the CIA. He was also different from other CIA officers of that era and probably from every other federal employee in Washington during that period uh, because of his personal life. He considered himself a deeply compassionate humanist. He lived in an eco cabin in the woods with no running water. Uh, He grew his own vegetables. He meditated with candles. He studied Buddhism. He wrote poetry. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. Uh, So a very unusual figure at the CIA. Um, With a scientist's mind, Gottlieb and the small group of chemists uh, with whom he worked started out on this project, which was the most intense and systematic search for mind control techniques that has ever been undertaken in history. So the first thing he decided was that before you could figure out how to implant a new mind in somebody's brain, you first had to find a way to blast away the mind that was in there. You had to destroy a human mind and a human body and a human spirit. That was what he set out to do. Next thing he asked himself, also with a good scientist's approach, was uh, what information, what research is out there already that we could draw on? So immediately they turned to the people who had had the greatest recent experience in uh, experiments aimed at destroying human minds and bodies, and that was the doctors at the Nazi concentration camps and their counterparts in Japan. These people were brought into the CIA. They not only advised the CIA on kinds of experiments and techniques they might use, but actually participated. So several of these Nazi doctors and their Japanese counterparts were hired by the CIA to bring the knowledge that they had gained during the war when they experimented people to death and use this to inform the CIA's search for mind control. Uh, So Gottlieb then set out on a series of what he called sub-projects aimed at testing every kind of drug and every kind of other coercive technique that he could imagine uh, to see how he could first destroy a mind and then try to insert another mind uh, in the void. Uh, These were the most extreme experiments that have ever been conducted on human subjects by any officer or agency of the U.S. government. Uh, He had two sets of experiments, one set that was in the United States, and he also conducted experiments outside the United States. So within the U.S., his favored subjects were prisoners, for obvious reasons. Um, He for example, oversaw an experiment at the federal prison in Kentucky in which seven African-American inmates 
were isolated into a cell and without being told what was happening to them, were given overdoses of LSD, triple doses, every day for 77 days. This was part of Gottlieb's effort to find out if this technique could destroy a human mind. And guess what? Yes, it can. Gottlieb found many ways to destroy human minds using sensory deprivation, electroshock, all sorts of different combinations of drugs. Outside the United States, his experiments were even more intense because there he didn't have what they charmingly called the disposal problem. Uh, If somebody died under their experiments, uh, the body could easily be uh, disposed of, particularly in Germany, which we more or less controlled after the Second World War, and in uh, Japan and uh, South Korea and and in the Philippines. Um, So uh, during the course of my research for this book, I discovered what I think may be the first CIA secret prison. It's in a lovely chalet outside of Frankfurt in Germany. It looks like it could be a B&B. And the uh, young German businessman who now owns it took me down into the basement and he showed me his storage rooms and he said, these were the cells where CIA doctors and their Nazi counterparts conducted experiments that were just continuations of the experiments that had gone on in concentration camps. Uh, He also said to me, the older people in the neighborhood here all understand what happened in this house. It's not a secret. And in fact, I found an article in uh, Der Spiegel, the German magazine, about this house and said this was the CIA torture house. There were deaths, but the number is not known. We now know that Gottlieb was at the top of this whole uh, series of experiments. One of the things they did in that house, for example, involved uh, sedating people, putting them in a coma, and then uh, overdosing them with stimulants so that they, and then in the period when they were in the transition phase from comatose to hyperactive, uh, still in their sensory deprivation chambers, uh, they would be dosed with uh, heavy electroshocks to see if this combination might somehow be the way to open up their minds to uh, manipulation from the outside. So um, Gottlieb conceived, directed, in many cases personally observed these experiments. He, He had the Jekyll and Hyde thing going in a really big way. He would do that during the day and then go home to do his meditations and his uh, community service and uh, be the loving uh, father and and husband that he was. Um, uh, Among all the drugs that Gottlieb came across and uh, inspected and compounded, and that was a vast array, uh, the one that fascinated him the most was LSD. Um, He emerged at the CIA at the very beginning of the LSD era, And he thought that it could be the key for mind control. It was so powerful in such such, uh, small doses. He thought this somehow could be used uh, as the key to blow away a person's mind and then program a person's mind. Uh, So in 1953, Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. And uh, he brought that back to the United States from the company in Switzerland that manufactured it. And uh, there he divided his LSD into two groups. Part of it was used for these heinous experiments 
that I just discussed. Others, other parts of that LSD were used for non-coercive experiments with volunteers. So he uh, set up a couple of bogus medical foundations, and through these foundations, he offered hospitals and clinics and universities the chance to carry out experiments with people who would come in and be told what they were doing so that uh, their reactions could be observed. Um, Many of those experiments happened here in California. And who were the first people to volunteer? Well, one was Ken Kesey who went on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Another was Allen Ginsberg, the poet. Uh, Another was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. All of these people got their first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb, from the CIA, from MKUltra. They didn't know it at the time. But 20, 25 years later, they all came to realize that they had actually unwittingly been part of a big CIA project. Um, John Lennon was asked in an interview I found about LSD, and he said, um, we must always remember to thank the CIA. (laughs) He didn't know enough to say what he really should have said, which was, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. So in a way, Gottlieb was an unwitting godfather of the entire counterculture. And the irony, of course, is that the drug that he hoped uh, would allow the CIA to control people's minds actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion aimed at destroying everything the CIA believed in. So at the end of 10 years of these intense experiments in the early 60s, Gottlieb was forced to come to two conclusions. Number one, yes, it is possible to destroy a human mind. He found out how to do that, and he left a trail of destroyed lives behind him. Number two, no, it is not possible to insert another mind into somebody's brain. Mind control is actually a myth. You can't make people go out and commit murder if they're fundamentally opposed to murder, despite what all those movies showed you. So all that suffering was aimed at reaching a holy grail, which ultimately Gottlieb had to admit did not exist. Gottlieb then went on to another stage in his career. He knew more about poisons than anybody in America, probably more than anyone in the world. So in uh, the spring of 1960, when President Eisenhower ordered that Fidel Castro be sawed off, as he put it, um, Gottlieb got the job. It was Gottlieb who made the poison cigars that were supposed to be passed to Fidel Castro. He poisoned 50 of them, a whole box with botulinum, one of his favorite poisons. Um, When those uh, could not be delivered, he um, compounded a series of L pills. I've learned a whole new lexicon of poisons since I've been working on this book. L stands for lethal. So L pills are pills that kill. And Gottlieb could make those quite easily with his unique laboratory. Um, Those pills also could not be delivered to Castro. Gottlieb even made a wetsuit that was supposed to be given to Castro as a gift, and inside it was tainted with a fungus that would eat away Castro's skin and kill him after he put it on. Um, Later that same summer in 1960, Gottlieb personally traveled to the Congo carrying poison that he had made to deliver to the CIA station chief in the Congo for use in killing the prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, who Eisenhower had also ordered assassinated. Uh, Lumumba was shot by Belgian and uh, Congolese commandos before the poison could be used, but Gottlieb definitely 
secured his reputation as the, the poisoner in chief. Uh, Gottlieb later went on to spend uh, seven years as head of the technical services staff, which is the uh, part of the CIA that makes the toys and the gizmos and the tools that spies use. Uh, In 1973, when he and his patron Richard Helms were effectively forced out of the CIA, they decided to destroy all records of MKUltra as they left, uh, thereby protecting themselves and the agency from... uh, embarrassment, and much more. Uh, since then, it's been possible to piece together some of what MK Ultra was, but um, maybe my favorite sentence in the book is at the very end where I say, everything in this book is true, but not everything that's true is in this book. I'm painfully aware that I've only discovered a little piece of what MK Ultra was and, and who Sidney Gottlieb was. Towards the end of his life, um, Gottlieb uh, was very uh, weighed down by what he had done. I, I have a section in my book where people who knew him in his final years talked about how he obviously felt burdened. I talked to Seymour Hirsch, who went out to visit him during that period, and he said uh, he was a broken man. He was riddled with guilt. If he'd been a Catholic, he would have gone to a monastery. So um, in the end, I look back on Gottlieb as a highly contradictory figure. He, he's all sorts of different archetypes that contradict each other. He was a creator who was also a destroyer. Um, he was a gentle-hearted torturer. Um, he was an outlaw, but an outlaw who served power. So his story is... Uh, a disturbing way in the end of uh, understanding our country and perhaps even understanding ourselves. Thank you. Our thanks to Stephen Kinzer, senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, former New York Times bureau chief for Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey, and author of the new book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. So now we'll start with the Q&A. You know, you said in your remarks that uh, you were actually, I think, surprised at a lot of the things you found during your research. But how did you first learn or even hear about Sidney Gottlieb, and what intrigued you to start the pursuit? In an earlier book, I had included a short section about how the CIA had sent somebody to the Congo with poison to kill Prime Minister Lumumba. Later on, I began thinking about that. That story stuck with me, and I began to wonder, so who was that guy? Was that, was that a courier? No, it was not a courier. It was the chief chemist of the CIA. Then I found out that this same guy had made the poisons to kill Fidel Castro. Uh, he'd made poison to kill Zhou Enlai, the uh, Prime Minister of China. But slowly I began to realize that the job of making poisons to kill foreign leaders was just a sidelight for Gottlieb. He was just the pharmacist in that project. People investigating the CIA got very excited about that. But the MK Ultra project was much bigger than that. That was all Gottlieb's responsibility. It would never have been that extreme, that intense, had it not been for Gottlieb. So I began to realize that uh, this person had uh, a secret life that helps us understand a little bit 
of what is the secret life of the U.S. government. Well, part of that, and, and when you talked about the assassinations uh, or attempted assassinations of Lumumba and Castro and others, uh, was sort of, he was, in a, in a sense, a tool of the people who ran the CIA. And in, tell us about, in the book, you recreated the scene where Eisenhower, who people don't think about it, was looking at what was happening in the Congo and decided that Lumumba should be eliminated. So Eisenhower, I think, saw covert action, even including assassination of foreign leaders, as a peace project. Think of it, he had had to send kids out to die by the thousands in World War II. This must have weighed on him. So I think he um, believed that uh, covert action was a great way to overthrow governments and change the course of history without having to waste all kinds of lives. I don't think he looked forward to see what the long-term impact of this would be. But Eisenhower also symbolizes how unsupervised Sidney Gottlieb was. So undoubtedly, Eisenhower knew something from Secretary of State Dulles, whose brother, Alan Dulles, was supervising Gottlieb. Um, But uh, the only people at the CIA who I think had an idea of what Gottlieb was doing were Alan Dulles, the director, and Richard Helms, who was the person in between him and Gottlieb. So both of those people understood that Gottlieb was doing horrific things. His experiments were very bloody, and probably people were being killed. Now, those of us in other kinds of work might think if somebody was doing something like that and was working for us, we would want to get some details and find out exactly what was happening. Their response was the opposite. The more they understood of how awful these experiments were, the less they wanted to know about them. They never asked. In fact, they didn't want to know. I think this is obedience not only to CIA culture, but the culture of secret services in general. Ignorance is an asset. People don't want to know too much. And because of that, Gottlieb was able to act completely on his own. It has the extra added asset that later on, when things become public, as they did at least to a certain point, people in the CIA and even above the CIA are able to say, oh, it was one crazy guy. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't supervise him well enough, and he went off and did these crazy things. This is a way of escaping all institutional responsibility for the CIA and for the U.S. government. Tying into that theme, I'm going to back up a little bit. And in the book, you go into great detail, gruesome detail, really about sort of the aftermath of World War II and OSS evolving into the CIA and what the, sort of the context of what was happening in the world, the fear of communism. But you mentioned that uh, in your remarks that the U.S. brought in Nazis and Japanese doctors and generals and leaders who had been involved in Horrific things. But can you talk a little bit about the way Kurt Bloom and Shiro Ishii were brought in and what they actually were doing, and yet the lack of, I call it morality, in terms of error ethics that led them to become part of this process of creating new super weapons and learning what they had done. But if you can detail a little bit of what they actually were doing. So Shiro Ishii was a Japanese doctor and general who ran a vivisection shop in Manchuria for uh, the Japanese army in which uh, several thousand people were essentially cut open alive and, and murdered so that he could see how bodies reacted in extreme stress. And then he would take slides, take little uh, bio samples from their organs that he had ripped out of them while they were still alive. The CIA wanted those slides. And they went to Ishii after the war and promised him, we won't prosecute you. 
but we want to know where your slides are. We want to have all the information about what the, how the body reacts to the most extreme kinds of torture. Kurt Blom was something like his counterpart in Germany. He was the chief of the Nazi bio-warfare program. Uh, Blom was put on trial in Nuremberg at the famous doctor's trial. But the CIA was able to get to the judges in that trial, who were American military officers, and essentially send them the message, we don't want to hang Kurt Blom. We want to hire him. And they did. Kurt Blom ultimately came to work for the CIA and brought all of his knowledge with him. Uh, I think this reflects the tenor of the time, but it also has a message for today. Commitment to a great cause is the ultimate justification for committing immoral acts. Patriotism is among the most transcendent and seductive of causes. When you allow yourself to get caught up into that, I think you lose sight of the question, is there a limit to the amount of evil that you can do pursuing what you think is a good cause before the evil begins to outweigh the good? I think Gottlieb did lose sight of that equation. And, and then you, um, you can go further, and, and you might want to just, I'll ask about Operation Paperclip, but one of the things that struck me in the book was the use of your word that was the use of the word the CIA used, the expendables, and you referenced that. But it's difficult to tell reading the book how many human beings were expendable overseas, but also in this country. And is there any estimate, and can you explain what an expendable was? And also you mentioned the Villa Schuster uh, and what was happening with the Rough Boys. But can you talk a little bit about that and if there's any information really about what happened in those places? So we don't know the number of people that were experimented to death. Probably that was included in those seven cases of uh, documents that were destroyed uh, as Gottlieb was leaving the CIA. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Operation Paperclip was the operation by which the biographies of Nazis uh, were bleached. They were converted into uh, making it seem like uh, they were very nice folks. Every time it said member of the SS, it would be changed to not a member of the SS. Uh, references to their nice family lives would be included. So they could be brought to the U.S. or brought to work for the CIA. Um, during this period, uh, only a very small number of scientists were aware of what Gottlieb was doing. They were the members of his inner core, and they traveled to these sites in East Asia uh, and in Europe, actually not only to conceive of, but to oversee and observe these torturous experiments. So Gottlieb himself uh, used LSD by his own account more than 200 times. I had to wonder when I began to understand the intensity of some of these experiments. 
whether he might have conceived some of them while he was actually tripping on acid. It's, only the, it's really the only way I can imagine that you would come up with these combinations of torments and then be able to convince yourself that this is something you need to do in order to defend the United States against communism. Well, one of the things uh, that you know, I think I saw when I was reading the book, when you talk about what happened in Villa Schuster and with the expendables in Germany and, and the dark sites really set up was a direct lineage to what happened after 9-11. And that's through line through the CIA. Can you talk about how that sort of worked and also what was utilized from learnings from the 40, 50 years prior to what happened in 2000 with Abu Ghraib and places like that? So the subjects in Gottlieb's experiments in, outside the United States, in foreign countries, were what they called expendables, another charming <laughs> CIA phrase. Uh, those were people who either were suspected enemy agents, possibly refugees who didn't have any connection to anybody and wouldn't be missed if they never turned up again. In East Asia, many of the expendables were um, captured North Korean prisoners of war. Um, and... A number of these people, we don't know how many, did not survive the experiments. Um, Gottlieb came to know more than anybody of his generation about how to destroy a human being. Um, And he wrote a, a memo explaining how to do this. How do you cut a person off from all sensory stimulus? How do you make a person completely dependent on the interrogator? How do you make that person lose all sense of connection to anything outside the little chamber in which you've imprisoned him? Gottlieb wrote about the techniques of doing this in an extended memo. Uh, So as I discuss in my book, that memo wound up shaping Uh, guidelines that were used for officers working in the Phoenix program in Vietnam. Uh, They were used in manuals that were passed to secret police forces working in Latin America during the 1980s. And they then turned up in instruction manuals for people uh, overseeing interrogations in places like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. In some cases, the phrases can be traced right back to Gottlieb. So there's a definite continuum from the experiments that he conducted in the 1950s right through to the tactics of uh, so-called enhanced interrogation that we're using today. Well, one of the things that struck me reading the book were the titles given some of these manuals. The Counterintelligence Interrogation, which was the Kubark Manual, which evolved in 1983, I think you wrote, to something called the Human Resources Exploitation Training Manual, which is really about what? Human resources exploitation is another, another word, I think, for mind control. How do you get into a person's head and manage to control that person? So although he was never able to figure out how to program someone to go out and commit aggressive acts, he was able to find out a whole series of ways uh, that you could reduce a functioning human being into a quasi-vegetable state. Only decades later did some of his victims slowly come to realize that that must be what had happened to them. Somebody in a bar, the one with the club foot, the 
put something in a drink and then my life was never the same again. Or I went into a hospital complaining of depression. I was captured by one of these doctors and then put into sensory deprivation chambers. And by the time I came out, I could never recognize my family again for the rest of my life or eat with silverware. What happened? Decades later, some of these people slowly began to connect what had happened to them to Gottlieb. And uh, toward the end of his life, one of these lawsuits uh, was actually going to come to trial after 20 years of ins and outs of the American court system. At the beginning of 1999, it looked like Gottlieb was actually going to have to testify under oath as a defendant in a case in which he had participated apparently in the drugging of someone whose life was completely destroyed from that moment. And just as the case was about to go to trial in 1999, Gottlieb died at the age of 80. I worked with the lawyer who had pursued that case for 20 years, and he told me, we'll never know for sure, but I'm convinced Gottlieb committed suicide. He didn't want to be the instrument by which all of this became public, and it's not a coincidence that he died just as a case was about to come to trial. One of the things that's striking in the book is almost the willy-nilly nature of dropping drops of LSD and other drugs into people's drinks or at parties. In fact, one anecdote is, uh, I think, in... Was it 53? One of the Christmas parties. What, what, was, what happened in one of the CIA Christmas parties? So in the December of 1954, I found a <clears throat> memo from Sheffield Edwards, who was the chief of security for the CIA. And it says, um, they had all, all, news about Gottlieb and his LSD fascination had already begun to filter around the CIA. And he said, uh, given this information, it would not be recommended to test the punch at the holiday Christmas parties here at the CIA. Uh, I found another great story uh, that Gottlieb used to like to tell later on. Um, So his experiments with LSD were super secret. Nobody even knew what LSD was in those days. Um, And nobody was allowed to know. So at this point in the mid-50s, one day Gottlieb was in an airplane And he had gone to the galley to get a drink and was walking back to his seat with his drink. And as he was walking down the aisle, he heard someone say, is that LSD you're drinking? And he was momentarily horrified since this was one of the greatest secrets of the U.S. government. And he turned around and who was sitting there but Alan Dulles, (laughs) just about the only person who knew. The, The book is just full of the most incredible characters you either stumbled across or knew about before you uh, started. Some of them are right out of any, the worst horror stories you can imagine. The Canadian doctor, uh, let me find his name, McEwen, was it? Cameron. Cameron. Uh, can you talk about how he got hooked up with Gottlieb and the experiments he ran, which to me were some of the most horrific, uh, what, that you wrote about? And I think he was also, wasn't he the head of the American Psychiatric Association and the Canadian? These were esteemed psychologists, psychiatrists who were brought into this web. Ewan Cameron was one of the contractors who got one of the 149 subcontracts that Gottlieb gave out. He was a Canadian psychologist and, as you said, very eminent president of psychological societies, director of of an institute at McGill University. Uh, Coincidentally enough, just before I walked into this room within the last hour, I've had a little meeting with somebody whose father had his life completely destroyed by going in to see Ewan Cameron. So he told me my father had two panic attacks. So he went into the psychological hospital. And at this time, by bad luck, 
Ewan Cameron had been contracted by Gottlieb to grab people for experiments. And uh, this guy was taken in for six weeks of sensory deprivation and massive dosing of uh, drugs. One of Gottlieb's, uh, one of Cameron's techniques also was to give his victims headphones in their sensory deprivation coffins. And in these headphones, he would have them, they would be repeated some phrase hundreds of thousands of times over days and weeks. A little phrase like, my mother hates me, my mother hates me. This would be going on shrieking into your ears all this time. Um, so as I just heard from this gentleman with whom I met, uh, the father then in his mid-40s came out and was never able to function again as a normal human being. He essentially was uh, psychologically crippled and destroyed for life. Uh, that was the trail that Sidney Gottlieb left behind him. And uh, Cameron was one of the most extreme of his subcontractors, but only the most extreme among the ones we know about. Um, so some people later have turned up, including victims of Ewan Cameron, uh, and have sought redress. Interestingly enough, one of his victims was the uh, wife of a member of the Canadian Parliament, he kept her case alive, and um, the granddaughter of this victim of Ewan, Ewan Cameron is now a very interesting artist in Canada. She's produced a whole series of artworks aimed at trying to convey what her grandmother went through under Ewan Cameron and Gottlieb's care, if you want to call it that. And uh, I have a photo of one of her uh, artworks in my book. It's the last picture in the photo section, and it's supposed to signify that uh, some of his, uh, some of the effects of his work are still uh, being fe felt today and that some people are still trying to point the responsibility and the finger at where it belongs. Well, again, the, the strand of characters in here is sort of astonishing, but one thing that really is clear is that anything Gottlieb and others in the CIA thought of to try an experiment and answer some of these questions they basically got away with. You're absolutely right. There was no limit. Uh, Gottlieb had the right to requisition human subjects at will all over Europe and Asia, as many as he needed. As I said, he was hardly supervised at all. Now, I mentioned that he was he only had a very small core of scientists working for him, which was vital because the secrets that they knew were the deepest and darkest of the entire Cold War. There was a moment in 1953 where one of these guys suddenly had a, an attack of conscience. This was a guy named Frank Olson, who was one of Gottlieb's chief chemists. During the summer of 1953, Olson made one of the normal tours that the MK Ultra team would make to Europe to observe the experiments. During this tour, Olson apparently saw people being tortured and possibly tortured to death using aerosols that he himself, Olson, had developed. Suddenly, this struck him, and he didn't want to do it anymore. He told people he was now very uncomfortable. When he got back to the U.S., he told his colleagues in the CIA, I want to quit. I'm going to quit the CIA. We later found out that he even asked one of his friends if he knew a good journalist. So not so long after coming back from uh, his trip to Europe, in, uh, on a November night in 1953, Frank, got, Frank Olson went out the window of a 13th floor hotel room in New York City and plunged to his death. That was described as the suicide of an army scientist. 
He was not an army scientist. He was a CIA scientist. And uh, the verdict of suicide also seems quite suspect uh, from the perspective that we have today. Well, that was a through line in the book, that story. Uh, what is, what is uh, ultra? You, what is it? Does it have a meaning? So the uh, Mind and Control the- Project had three names. It started out being called Bluebird, supposedly because being, uh, truth serum being uh, one of the first goals, uh, it, the idea was you were going to try to find a potion or a pill that would make a prisoner sing like a bird. Uh, later on, the name of the project was changed from Bluebird to Artichoke, <laughs> supposedly Alan Dulles's favorite vegetable. Was not able to verify that. Um, and then it became MK Ultra. I think Alan Dulles chose that name because it meant the Ultra Project. This is the most important project we have. And I think he was right. It, it, it is a fantasy. But if that fantasy were, were true, then it would be the Ultra Discovery for any intelligence service. You know, one thing, again, you, you mentioned morality, but frame the world at that time and, and what could have enabled, really, people in the American government to do the things they did, their worldview, what they saw happening. It's the aftermath of World War II. We think we won, but then the rise of communism, Russia, USSR, China. How do you, is there an explanation for this or even a, an excuse? Uh, America always has trouble when we get into uh, enemy deprivation syndrome. We, we, we need to uh, have somebody out there uh, to pose as the, the counterweight and the enemy that's out there. Uh, and certainly the Soviet Union played that role very positively for us uh, in the late 40s and early 50s and beyond. Um, I think we projected onto the Soviets all the worst aspects of the enemies that we'd fought in World War II. If the Japanese could bomb America without warning, the Soviets were certainly likely to do the same. If the Nazis had uh, killed millions of people for no reason in concentration camps, the Soviets would certainly want to do the same to us. Um, So Americans were led to believe that we faced a horrific and implacable enemy that was plotting every day, not only to kill us all, but to destroy the entire possibility of meaningful human life on earth. Fighting such a horrific enemy would certainly be worth the sacrifice of a few lives or a few hundred lives. To complain about that in the climate of the early CIA would have seemed naive and sentimental. Uh, So caught up in this mindset, everything seemed justifiable. And I do think that that's one message that that era has for our era today. Now we're also being told that because of the urgency of the threat that we're facing, um, we have to give up some of our civil liberties and we have to carry out certain actions in the world that being good and ethical and moral, responsible people that we are, we normally would never carry out. But in this extreme circumstance, we're forced to abandon some of our principles. So I think uh, there's always the push to say that the situation we happen to be in right now is so extreme that we have to depart from normality. After a while, we adjust to a new normality. Well, I mean, one of the things you cite over and over is Gottlieb and others saw themselves as true patriots and were really defending American values. He couldn't fight in the war. I think Dulles also had a 
Club Foot, I mean, and they, there was a connection there. I mean, was that part of the motivation? Definitely, uh, Godley was uh, motivated especially by the fact that he had not been able to serve in World War II because his limp made him ineligible. He was eager to serve the U.S. government in some other way. When the CIA called, he thought this was his chance. And uh, there's no evidence that he ever questioned any of the uh, extreme natures of his experiments. On, on the contrary, he kept pushing it further and further. I, I had to ask myself, how could a person who considered himself such a decent humanistic uh, being uh, allow himself to do that? Maybe it was that he, uh, he considered himself an extreme individualist who lived in a very unusual way. He could have told himself that there was a force in the world that wanted to make it impossible for anybody to live in an individual way and wanted to regiment all of society. This is part of what we were told about what communism was. And therefore, uh, anything that he could do to resist that would be justified. But his story is definitely an object lesson for all of us who get carried away with a cause and think that uh, anything is justifiable given the urgency of the threat. Needless to say, Cold War historians today have unanimously concluded that the way we perceived the world, the threat that we saw, was greatly exaggerated. But at the time, it seemed so real that any kind of defense... And Gottlieb certainly saw his experiments as a way to defend America was justifiable. Well, in, in seeking, seeking solutions, again, the creativity and sort of the, I'll say, horrific nature of what was going on enlisted many people. Tell us about John Mulholland. <laughs> I came across such fascinating characters writing this book. Um, so John Mulholland was the most famous magician of his era. And Gottlieb essentially was brought into the CIA to do something magic, uh, mind control. So uh, it was logical in a way that he would uh, cross paths with, uh, with Mulholland, who was a disciple of Houdini and then became this great figure who part- por- uh, performed at Radio City Music Hall. And he performed for Eleanor Roosevelt and the Sultan of Sulu. And he had a great coterie of celebrity friends. Uh, so Gottlieb went to see him and presented him with this problem. He said, uh, I'm able to make poisons and uh, mind-altering pills and devices. We also have agents who can get close to the targets. But how do we actually deliver the pill? How do you get the pill into the drink? How do you stick the needle that's, he had invented needles that were so hyper-thin you wouldn't even feel them when they went in. But how how do you get to them? How, How do you actually deliver the poisons? And he hired Mulholland to write a manual based on his stage magic techniques about how to drop pills into people's drinks without them noticing, um, how uh, women could use uh, brocade uh, purses as disguises. Um, And I learned a little bit about magic from uh, reading his manual, which did become public not so long ago. It's actually the only MK Ultra document that has become fully available. And uh, one of the things that I learned about magic from John Mulholland, this was what he taught the CIA agents because he not only wrote the book, he conducted seminars, training sessions for CIA agents and how to drop the poisons and how to, uh, how to stab people with poison uh, syringes uh, was that 
It's not true that the hand is quicker than the eye. He used to say this. You've all heard the phrase, the hand is quicker than the eye. That's how magic works. This is not correct. The hand is not quicker than the eye. That's not how magic works. Magic works by distracting a person and making them look at one thing while you're doing something else. And so I learned this from Mulholland and CIA officers learned that and a lot more. So we're in San Francisco, so we have to talk a little bit about Operation Sea Spray and Operation Midnight Climax and what they were all about and some of the characters behind those operations when people may be surprised to hear the address of Operation Midnight Climax. Um, Well, yeah, these are two uh, drug-related tests that were carried out in uh, San Francisco, very different. So Operation Sea Spray was actually a military operation that the CIA was also involved in. Uh, The military wanted to find out if it would be possible to spray an entire city with some kind of toxic poison. Uh, In order to test this, they picked a city and they decided they would um, spray that city with a a non-toxic but traceable bacteria so they could see if it worked. And they chose San Francisco. This became Operation Sea Spray. Um, San Francisco was chosen not just because it's on the water and has tall buildings, but also it was thought that the uh, fog would help disguise the clouds of air. So for about a week a specially fitted Navy minesweeper that had giant hoses built into it, uh, connected to tanks of a harmless but traceable bacteria, cruised along the coast of California uh, near San Francisco. And sure enough, a week later, after all the measurements were taken, it, was turn- it turned out that uh, this poison spray, or could have been poison if they wanted to, had reached all of San Francisco and about a dozen communities surrounding it. So the CIA found out, thanks to San Francisco, that it was able to Weren't there to some people who actually had it in their system and it affected yeah, there, them? I found a medical journal uh, article written by a couple of doctors in a hospital just outside San Francisco. And he and his colleagues said, we, we had 11 patients check in with uh, urinary infections. We couldn't understand where these came from. The spray had a little red uh, dye in it so they could trace it. And they said there was a little bit of red dye in the urine and we have no explanation for this uh, puzzling uh, bacteriological phenomenon. So it wasn't as, as uh, non-toxic as they thought. Needless to say, no officials in San Francisco or California were ever told that this operation and what was What year happening. was that? So that was in 1951. Okay. So later on in the mid-1950s, um, even a more bizarre project unfolded up on Telegraph Hill. Sidney Gottlieb, in his infinite imagination, decided that one thing he should find out about is whether drugs had a special effect on men uh, in conjunction with sex. So how do you do that? Oh, no problem. The CIA should set up a bordello and should hire somebody. Uh, to run it. And sure enough, that's what Gottlieb did. He hired a guy who was actually in his day job, a federal narcotics agent. He's one of the most colorful characters in my book. Um, And this guy's job was to uh, hire a string of prostitutes who brought men up to an apartment at 225 uh, Chestnut Street up on Telegraph Avenue, which Gottlieb had decorated in a kind of a bordello chic style. Uh, And there, the women would dose these men with uh, tainted drinks. Of course, they didn't even know what was in the drinks. And meanwhile, this agent, George Hunter White, who knew nothing about psychology or or any kind of science, 
would sit behind a one-way mirror on his portable toilet drinking martinis out of a pitcher and making notes about the sex that was going on in the other room. This was your tax dollars at work (laughs) seeking to find a way to protect the United States against communism. Well, one of the things in the book you write about is that they, they were, some of them were dosed with LSD and other things that after finishing, normally the prostitutes jumped out and left, but they realized if they st- hung around and, with the men, the men would then begin talking. Godlieb had his agents uh, prep the prostitutes after a while to see if you stay with them for a while. Ask them questions like, you know that plane you're working on? How high does it fly? They would test out these things in uh, Operation Midnight Climax. And uh, I went up actually to see the building. Uh, it's a lovely spot. I did read that it had a view of, of the bay. Uh, the building has been unfortunately demolished. There's a new building there. But I uh, still felt a little of that midnight climax karma. <laughs> so do you, you've, you've delved deep into the secrets of the CIA. A lot of the files, as you said, nearly all the files uh, for Ultra were destroyed. I think one of the interesting ways some of the, information came out with from receipts and expense reports. But go, looking at the arc of the CIA's history cr- growing out of World War II, what do you think is going on today, whether it was under this administration or from Bush through Obama to Trump now? Well, when you are researching a project like this one, MK Ultra, and you're realizing how extreme are some of the projects that unfold behind closed doors. It has to make you wonder if there aren't others. Could there have been another Gottlieb? Could there be other Gottliebs now? Think of how technology has advanced so tremendously from the essentially Paleolithic era of the 1950s when Gottlieb was around. At least when Gottlieb was there, there were people who could have supervised him if they wanted to. They didn't want to. But it was a small circle. It was a small system. Now, our surveillance system and surveillance state is so big that I don't think there's any person or even any group of people that has an idea of everything that it's doing. So uh, certainly the Gottlieb story takes you to the edge of conspiracy theory and beyond. It's difficult not to read this story and wonder if there isn't somebody, some person comparable to Gottlieb, who will be the subject of a book by some Stephen Kinzer 50 years from now that might be discussed in this very room. Uh, you know, one of the, the uh, things that, uh, you know, was sort of remarkable again uh, were the devices that were created by, could you briefly mention a few of those? So Gottlieb became, as I said, the uh, maker of spy tools towards the end of his career. He was very uh, creative, as he always was. Um, and he, so he was, if you've seen the James Bond movies, or you know those books, there was a guy named Q who created all the spy tools. That was Gottlieb. Um, so uh, he created tools that boggle the imagination. One that I didn't want to look too deeply into was a miniaturized prison escape kit that could be concealed in a rectal suppository. Um, He uh, 
received a request. He often responded to the requests of CIA officers in the field. It turned out that uh, CIA officers in a Latin American country, which I think was Colombia, were no longer able to overhear the Soviet ambassador because he was suspicious and he had begun carrying out his sensitive conversations out in the yard under a big tree. What can we do? So Gottlieb came out with, came up with a gun with a one-shot projectile, specially made gun. You'd fire this projectile from several hundred yards away through the gate of the embassy, and it would hit, the projectile would hit the tree. And in that projectile was a miniaturized microphone and a transmitter. Another one of my favorite devices that I actually did see had to do with the L pill, the, the lethal pill. So Gottlieb con- concocted these for all sorts of purposes, including for uh, the U-2 pilots, who were given that famous device where they, with a pin where they could just touch their skin and they would die. That was a toxin that uh, Gottlieb had created uh, from, by extracting minute amounts of bacteria from thousands of Alaskan butter clams. That's the way he made his poisons. Um, so um, he went on to create a an L pill that was going to be given to a, apparently a Soviet agent. So somebody that the CIA had who was a Russian, who was a traitor to his own country working inside the Soviet bureaucracy. And this person was afraid of being found out and tortured to death. And he wouldn't work unless he got an L pill. So Gottlieb could make the L pill, but that's not enough. How do you Take the L pill when you're in the middle of an interrogation. You can't ask for a pause and reach down into your sock and take out the pill box. So Gottlieb uh, created a pair of eyeglasses with this guy's prescription. And if you took off the glasses, for example, under an intense interrogation session where you were very nervous and you were sweating and you nervously started to chew on the end of your eyeglasses, that's where the pill was. So you'd chew on your eyeglasses and immediately fall over and die. So this is the kind of creativity that made Gottlieb uh, such a celebrated figure toward the end of his career at the CIA. So in, in your research, you know, obviously the, the goal of a lot of this work of the CIA was control and creating the super weapon, LSD, you know, without all these things, a super weapon. But was there also experimentation looking at LSD and psilocybin, the mushrooms, other things that other drugs they were using in terms of treatment, actual treatment for illness, mental illness? You know, today some of these drugs are being used for, for, or experiments are going on and legal now, once again, uh, to treat trauma, for example, in veterans. Was there any indication that they actually looked maybe how this could be used, quote unquote, for good or to help people? First of all, I would say that uh, Gottlieb would answer, everything we did with LSD was for the good because it was to defend America. Uh, but in the narrower sense of your question, the answer is no. They, Gottlieb never thought of LSD in a therapeutic sense. Now, the chemist who discovered LSD, Albert Hoffman, did think of it that way. His first idea was that it should be used as a treatment for mental illness. So now we're 70 years later, and I think you're right that in a way LSD is back. Um, there's going to be a musical on Broadway this spring 
uh, written by James Lapine, the Pulitzer and Tony Award winner, um, about how Aldous Huxley and Claire Booth Luce and mm. Cary Grant used LSD way back in the day. Uh, just recently, Johns Hopkins University announced a $17 million grant to create an institute for the study of psychoactive drugs. It's the first time this ever happened in America. Um, Denver has legalized uh, magic mushrooms. I think that uh, we're now finally perhaps getting back to the point that Albert Hoffman envisioned at the beginning in the 1940s where LSD and psychoactive drugs could be used for therapeutic and positive purposes. One of the reasons why we got so far off this track was Sidney Gottlieb. So unfortunately, we've reached the point where we have time for one last question. And I want to read, you, you alluded to this earlier uh, in your introductory remarks, but it, I came away from reading the book seeing that where you certainly saw the evil in Gottlieb, but he was a very complicated character, as you alluded to, because uh, he was a, you know, a reflection of his times. Was he a patriot? Was he a killer? But you wrote at the, near the end of the book, History and morality loom like threatening clouds over any attempt to assess Cindy Gottlieb's life and work. He can be fairly praised as a patriot and just as fairly aboard as demonic. Judging him requires a deep dive into the human mind and the human soul. So what's your conclusion after doing all this work and writing this book? After he left the CIA, Gottlieb went off to become the Sidney Gottlieb that he always thought that he was. They sold all their belongings. They went off to help the world's poorest people for the rest of their lives. And in 1975, Sidney Gottlieb and his wife were working at a hospital for leprosy patients in India when they got a most unwelcome cable from the general counsel of the CIA saying, essentially, I've got bad news. Somebody has figured out that you exist uh, and they want to talk to you. That was the church committee that was investigating the CIA. Gottlieb did have to testify twice, but he did it in private rooms. Uh, and the senators did not know enough to ask him the right questions. They focused mainly on the assassinations, which were headline grabbing. They never touched the heart of his MK Ultra mystery. Uh, so I think that Gottlieb... Uh, definitely believed he was a patriot. But I also think he understood the, the severity of what he was doing. Uh, pieces of his testimony are available. Uh, and in one point he says, I want the members of this committee to know that I considered this work to be very difficult, very distasteful, very unpleasant, but also very necessary, which you could only understand if you were there at that time. So I think that is the way he justified it. Nonetheless, his own justifications were not enough even for himself at the end. Anybody who believed in final judgment or karmic payback would certainly have uh, great uh, trouble looking back on a life like Sidney Gottlieb's. Okay. Our thanks to Stephen Kinzer, Senior Fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University former New York Times bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey, and author of the new book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's Search for Mind Control. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We also thank everyone here, as well as our audience on radio, television, and the Internet. 
We want to remind you that Mr. Kinzer's book is for sale, and he'll be pleased to sign copies outside this room following the program. I'm Robert Rosenthal, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.